You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to the JNNP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Coming up in this edition, how to spot small vessel disease before it causes intracerebral hemorrhage. Nick Ward talks to David Waring about the potential of enlarged perivascular spaces as a neuroimaging marker. Perivascular spaces are part of brain imaging that's received very little attention uh, for, for many years now, so they're usually dismissed as being incidental or uninteresting or just a just feature of ageing. But in fact, we notice they're very common in our patients with, with both ischemic and, and hemorrhagic manifestations of small vessel disease. A couple of weeks ago, the Association of British Neurologists convened its annual meeting in Glasgow, and amongst the sessions was one on stem cell treatments for Parkinson's and also stroke. Here are the speakers on where and how current trials are going and the expensive unproven therapies already on the market. I'm Neil Scolding and we've just chaired a session on stem cells and neurological disease and I have with me uh, two of the speakers from the session, Professor Keith Muir and Professor Roger Barker and Keith, perhaps you'd start just by introducing yourself. So I'm Keith Muir, I'm a neurologist in Glasgow and involved predominantly in trials in stroke. And Roger. I'm Roger Barker. I'm a neurologist in Cambridge and a a neuroscientist. And I work on new therapies for treating neurodegenerative diseases, but particularly cell-based therapies and stem cells. Thanks very much. So your two talks concentrated on the one hand on uh, stem cell therapy for stroke uh, and on the other hand uh, on stem cell therapies for Parkinson's disease. And one of the perhaps surprising aspects to emerge was Uh, that not only are the clinical trials ongoing, but the clinical trials have gone back for quite a long while. So with Parkinson's disease in particular, which probably started off the field of of treating neurological disease, perhaps not with stem cells, but with cells, it goes back a very long way, Roger. Yeah, I mean, the transplantation Parkinson's began in the 1980s experimentally. So it's the late 70s, 80s that it was demonstrated you could transplant cells into animal models of Parkinson's and get effects in the laboratory. And it was in the early to mid-1980s that that moved for the first time into clinic, initially with adrenal adrenal medullary transplant, which didn't really uh, survive uh, transplantation and patients really didn't have much benefit. And that led to the fetal transplant, which began in the late 1980s and then through the 1990s and came to an end at the first part of this century. And those transplants involved using the developing dopamine cells from the human uh, midbrain. They were dissected, turned into a sort of crude suspension or tissue pieces, implanted. And in Europe and in some private clinics, really, in America, the results were very encouraging in some patients with Parkinson's disease. That then led to NIH-funded trials in America to look at this against imitation surgery to see whether there really was an effect. And the results of those trials were negative. They were published uh, uh, now 10 and 12 years ago, and that largely brought the field to an end which was an interesting paradox the field found itself in because during that period of time when cells were being used for Parkinson's adrenal and fetal, stem cells came of of age, really. And then the question was, what do you do with stem cells with failed cell therapy trials in Parkinson's, as was seen by many people at that time? And then, Keith, it's also been going on not for quite so long, uh, not not the late 70s and 80s, but for quite a while in, in stroke So cell therapy trials were first reported back in 2000 and we had a series of 
trials which looked at different types of cell derived from human teratocarcinoma tissue in, in one instance uh, and also pig-related tissue. And these were trials of transplantation of cells directly into the brain. But these have been followed over the last 10 years or so by a succession of trials which have all looked at delivery of bone marrow-derived stem cells or cells with stem cell properties. Uh, some of these have been direct implantations into the brain, but many of them increasingly have looked at intravenous or intra-arterial cell delivery. And a variety of different routes are being pursued in trials that are ongoing just now. And the studies that you're doing here in Glasgow are obviously not uh, bone marrow-derived cells. Tell us a little bit about more the, 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 uh, the type of cell that you've been injecting. So the trial we're doing is in collaboration with a company called Reneuron who've developed a cell line derived from a human fetal source. So this is human neural stem cells which have been genetically modified so that they can be grown to order in large and identical numbers. And the cells are, are being implanted directly into the brain, deep into the regions close to the areas damaged by stroke. And the trial started just two and a half years ago now. Uh, the, the patients have been involved for the longest period of time. We've followed up for just over that period of time. Uh, and so far we've, we've completed 11 implantations in, in the patient's going from a starting dose of 2 million cells up to the current dose of 20 million cells. So Keith, your trial is effectively drawing to a close now and as a phase one trial, primarily looking at safety but some outcome efficacy measures as well and you've been encouraged, I think, broadly. Intrigued would probably be a better word because I don't think we have either the trial design or the experience of looking at this type of population to know what the natural history is. But nonetheless, we're seeing improvements neurologically and in terms of function in the majority of the patients have taken part, sustained over many months or years of follow-up so far. And that's not something we would expect, given that we selected people who are really very severely disabled by stroke, stable and a very long time after the, the initial insult had occurred. So it, it certainly intriguing enough to take this forward into a phase two study. And the safety certainly looks uh, reassuring. No issues with the cells so far that we've identified, but the total duration of follow-up for the, the trial will ultimately be 10 years of direct contact with the patients and beyond that, lifelong registry-based follow-up for certain events and also post-mortem tissue examination in due course as well. So the, the follow-up will go on for quite some time to come. And are other groups looking at the same cells elsewhere? Do you... there, there are studies going on in rather diverse areas, so peripheral limb ischemia and some of the uh, retinal degenerative conditions are being investigated as well. But, but not stroke, it's just you at present with this With uh, this type cell, cell type, uh, yes. There are quite a number of other cell-based trials in stroke being conducted, but most of those are opting to take autologous cells of one type or another, mostly bone marrow-derived cells, some that are being taken out and cultured and specific mesenchymal stem cell fractions being re-injected, some taking hematopoietic progenitor cells and putting them back in, some now proposing to take out adipose tissue and derive mesenchymal stem cell populations from, from that, and re-injecting the cells days or weeks after they've been derived. 
So a lot of activity. And in a sense, that contrasts with the Parkinson's disease field where the reaction to the controlled trials probably four or five years ago now, or even longer, as you said, led to the field more or less declaring uh, what fortunately turned out to be a temporary moratorium. But you finished, Roger, much more positively with uh, a trial that you're leading across the whole of Europe. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, I think the double-blind placebo-controlled trials, which were from the States, were perceived initially as being negative because they didn't fulfil their primary endpoints. But if you interrogate those trials and you look back over all the open-label studies, you can start to pick up a pattern on who is likely to benefit from these transplants. And we were learning also how better to do it. And and as you say, that then led to the EU funding uh, us to do a, a coordinated transplant trial across Europe where we're taking people who are slightly different to those who've been in the trials to date. They're slightly younger, they're slightly earlier in the disease course. And we feel by controlling more for patient selection, type, stage, tissue dissection, way it's implanted, immunotherapy, trial design, you can get a more consistent signal as to whether this therapy really works. And for the field of cell therapy, I think it's not just whether it works, but whether it works competitively. Because compared to other diseases, we have a lot of very good treatments for Parkinson's. We have a lot of very good drugs. We have deep brain stimulation. We have enteral use of dopamine in the form of duodopa. And ultimately, our cell-based therapies, which are around dopamine replacement, so they're dealing with the, the same type of symptoms and signs as patients have that respond to these other therapies, ultimately, you have to say, is cell therapy any better or equivalent to what we have already, is it cheaper? And that, so the competitive aspect of it, I think, is going to become more of a, a of a question, especially as we move towards stem cell based therapies, because stem cell based therapies almost certainly are going to attract commercial investment, and then it's a, a you know a company that will be owning it, and then how does that fit in with the NHS and therapies in general? And before we get to that stage of, of commercialization, although, as you pointed out, as both of you pointed out, in what other people have called rogue clinics, commercialization has started already. But in, in terms of more conventional commercialization, the stage before that is controlled trials. And in the approaches that both of you are pursuing, we're talking about direct implantation, neurosurgical intervention. And placebo controlled trials of any neurosurgical intervention are, of course, very difficult. And Keith, you began to talk about approaches to planning a control group having a neurosurgical operation. And just tell us a little bit more about that. Well, the conventional and correct way of doing the trial, of course, is to randomise the patient once they're under anaesthetic, having had the identical operation and getting either a placebo injection or a cell-based injection, and you don't know which you're going to give. So there's no doubt that that can be done but it's a very difficult one to sell to patients. And therefore, it's possible to borrow models from other areas, particularly oncology, where they've got a, a tradition of testing therapies in a slightly novel way in order to speed up the process of doing the trial. And given the commercial pressures that we've described, we know that patients really want therapies tested and evaluated in a, as rapid a fashion as possible. The proposal for the phase two trial that we're involved in is to borrow one of these oncology models and initially implant all the patients, but take a group where you select them very carefully to have no expected natural recovery and look for an early signal of response to the, the therapy such that you can see if you exceed a predefined threshold or not 
If you don't exceed the threshold, you're unlikely to have sufficient benefit in enough patients to make it worth pursuing. Mm -hmm. So you discard that, you move on to the next therapy. And that is a model which has some attractions for something as invasive and awkward as this. And Roger, you're using a very different cell type and you're obviously looking at a very different disease with a different set of problems. Is your approach to placebo control going to be similar though? I take a slightly different strategy. I, I think it's important to remember that the placebo control trials done in the States weren't proper placebo control trials because none of the patients actually had dead cells injected into their brain. They either had a transplant or they had imitation surgery. So they're not the same as taking a dummy tablet, for example. So this has always been a controversial area, as you say. What we're doing within our transplant trial in Europe is essentially recruiting 150 patients, all of whom look the same and are followed up in a, in a standardised fashion of which 20 are randomly selected to have the transplant. We will then compare the natural history of those transplanted patients, those 20 against the 130 that have not but are matched in terms of their clinical features. The other thing in Parkinson's disease is that people worry about a placebo effect and you do see it, especially in the gene therapy trials that have taken place. But to have a therapy, coming back to a point I made earlier, that is competitive your transplant is going to have to improve people by 30 to 50% over two or three years. If your therapy cannot do that, you haven't got a commercially or competitive therapy, that is way beyond any placebo effect you can see in Parkinson's disease. So do you think you can make a strong argument in that situation uh, f for literally not having a placebo group. If you need a placebo group to show an effect, then the effect isn't strong enough to be useful. Precisely. That's exactly the point that I make. And, and, it's, and, if, and people often say there's a big placebo effect, but if you look at the transplant trials in the original Swedish open label studies, the patients improved much more on the contralateral side than they did on the ipsilateral side. So there was asymmetry in a patient who had had a treatment and knew they had a treatment. In all of the trials where there has been a placebo effect of any significance they've all been commercially sponsored so all the gene therapy trials and the pig trial and the second NIH funded trial where there was no commercial income if you like to the investigators the placebo the, the sham treated arm the imitation surgery arm got worse over two years they didn't know they'd had sham surgery but they actually got worse over the two-year follow-up so it's not an inevitable consequence of these therapies I think there are other factors that play into it but again, a different set of problems in stroke when there isn't a, a best comparator treatment. You're looking in particular at static patients years after their stroke. Uh, so your stem cell treatment, your cell therapy, uh, doesn't have to do better than any current therapy because there isn't a current therapy. Well, yes and no. I think the difficulty we have is that we're out in a territory where there is no established treatment. So what you have is a very heterogeneous mix of things that people pursue, some of them prescribed, some of them not and it varies enormously across healthcare systems. So we, in the UK, don't provide routine physiotherapy on a regular basis for people years after the stroke. But in other healthcare systems, they do get a physiotherapy review annually, for example. How much physiotherapy is influencing the, the course of the disease at these later stages is something that we simply don't know. So you're dealing with a, a background where therapy trials suggest that there is probably some functional benefit, but how much, how often, and what type varies enormously in clinical practice. So you're dealing with a highly heterogeneous environment which is very difficult to, to prescribe in any controllable fashion. Although the, the therapeutic landscape in terms of drugs or other specific medical interventions is currently blank, 
it's still not a, a completely blank canvas that you're dealing with. And then lastly, some words of practical advice that I'd like to ask, if, if possible. We've alluded to the various so-called clinics selling so-called therapies, uh, often operating out of very unregulated uh, environments, making large profits for, for entirely untested and unproven therapies, and yet desperate patients are uh, are not surprisingly, uh, often pursuing this. And the vast majority of patients, whether it's with stroke or Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis, of course, are not going in to, to, to get into uh, clinical trials, which are still at the phase one, phase two level, very small numbers of patients. So I'll, I'll ask both of you the same question. Ro- Roger, when a patient says, well, I missed your trial, I missed the criteria for whatever reason, I'm going to China and I'm going to spend £30,000 on A-cell therapy. Do you say, well, that's fine, off you go and I'll see you when you come back? Do you discourage them? Do you try and talk them out of them? How do you manage that problem? You don't want to remove hope from them. And of course, they've got the condition and you haven't. So what I tend to say to people is that these therapies are unproven. As such, you should never have to pay for an experimental therapy. It should be part of a trial and we should be trying to understand how it works and that these therapies are not without risk. Although there is a hope, which is what you're obviously relying on, that they will help, often the science and the origin of those cells is very obscure, and that patients have died having had these procedures. So there's a famous case from Russia, someone with, I think, ataxia telangiectasia, had a stem cell transplant, developed tumours all over the spine and brain and died. And the other important thing is that whilst they might not be suitable for a trial today, they may be suitable for a trial tomorrow. And certainly within our regulations in terms of how we set up trials with experimental therapies, if someone has had previous surgery to their brain having had one of these therapies, it would preclude them from being enrolled into any studies that that we would be undertaking. And as you say, the child who died, it was very clearly proven that those tumours did come from, from the transplant. Any additional tricks or advice or how to handle patients' desperation? I, I think we have pretty much the same conversation and point out that they are participating, they are being asked to participate in an uncontrolled experiment for which there's no follow-up plan. Our experience is that these clinics are very happy to take the money and very happy to send you back with a glossy brochure and very happy to say, we, of course, we want to follow you up at six months, but at your own expense, and therefore people don't go back. They're also quite adept at finding ways of blaming the patient if it doesn't work, which is a tactic we've seen in several people who are told that the cells will only take and be effective if they deliver at least six hours of physiotherapy a day to make them engraft properly. And the families then blame themselves for failing to provide enough additional therapy to help the cells to take when they find that they have not had the desired effects, which is usually the case. Or the other one that I've seen is this will only work if you come back and have a second treatment uh, for another twenty, thirty thousand dollars. And I, I should just say that this is this is not the preserve of clinics outside of Europe. So there was a clinic in Bonn where this was a big issue, Absolutely. and in Italy at the moment they've only just voted not to support publicly fund an unproven mesenchymal stem cell transplant uh, work in patients with neurological disease and metabolic diseases. And a clinic in Amsterdam was closed down a year or two ago, so this is not that far from home. No, I think people find it very easy to be persuaded that going to China or Venezuela or somewhere that sounds very remote and unregulated is perhaps an unwise move. 
but people find it very easy to be seduced by glossy websites that originate in the United States or Europe, and there are plenty of those. Yes. Okay, Roger Barker and Keith Muir, thank you very much indeed for your talks this morning and uh, for sharing some of your thoughts now. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was just one of a number of features we're going to be publishing with the Association of British Neurologists over the next few months, covering topics across neurology. Also available as separate podcasts right now are two educational updates, one on peripheral nerve disease and the other on multiple sclerosis. So listen to those to get up to speed with recent developments and for some clinical advice. Next up, what severity of enlarged perivascular spaces can tell us about someone's risk of spontaneous intracerebral haemorrhage? Hello, my name's Nick Ward. I'm an associate editor at JNNP and today we are talking to David Waring who is a reader in clinical neurology and consultant at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery in Queen Square. And the reason that we have David in today is to talk about a paper that he's just had published in the JNNP called Enlarged Perivascular Spaces as a Marker of Underlying Arteriopathy in Intracerebral Hemorrhage, a Multicenter MRI Cohort Study. So, David, it's very nice to have you here. So, um, I wondered if we could just start talking about how you see the field of uh, intracerebral hemorrhage at the moment and how it might have developed over the last five or ten years. So thanks, Nick. Um, I think if we if we look at the field of stroke in general, we, we're now realising that stroke is not simply one disease. And in ischemic stroke, there's a huge awareness of this now. So we make great efforts to, to um, carefully classify our patients as to potential mechanisms. Um, and the the same is true in the field of intracerebral hemorrhage, really. So there's this concept of spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage, which is um, non-traumatic. And within that, most of the cases are thought to be due to a disorder of the small blood vessels in the brain. And by small, we mean up to um, a few hundred microns, uh, generally. And really, uh, we're, we're now aware that um, this is not a homogeneous entity, so that there are different types of small vessel disease underlying the phenomenon of intracerebral hemorrhage. And it may well be that these different subtypes have very different natural histories, different treatment approaches and different manifestations on neuroimaging. So that's the first thing that's evolved in the last 10 years is uh, understanding of underlying diseases and that's what all this paper's about. But it's also a tremendously optimistic time for this uh, devastating disease because we've got all sorts of acute treatments. For instance, um, there's a huge trial of blood pressure lowering called Interact 2 that's going to report in a few weeks' time at the European Stroke Congress. There's treatments with antifibrinolytic agents. There's trials of minimally invasive surgery, um, thrombolytics for intraventricular hemorrhage. So there's all sorts of changes in the acute phase. And um, I think there's also an increasing awareness of the sequelae of intracerebral hemorrhage. So the long-term difficulties with, uh, for instance, high risk of dementia um, and the preventative strategies. So we know blood pressure lowering is incredibly effective for preventing further cerebral hemorrhage. And there may be on the horizon other other um, ways of modifying the natural history. So it's a tremendously exciting field of research um, in the last 10 years. So tell us a bit about the background, the thinking behind this study. So what uh, set you off wanting to do this work? This is a study looking at uh, ways of trying to determine the underlying type of small vessel disease in cerebral hemorrhage and 
we, we now know that um, there are at least two underlying processes. One is hypertensive arteriopathy affecting the deep perforators, which irrigate the basal ganglia and the brainstem largely. And then the other main process is uh, an amyloid uh, deposition disease uh, known as cerebral amyloid angiopathy. And this affects the cortical vessels and the leptomeningeal vessels. And these are on the surface of the brain. So we know there's this dichotomy of, um, of causes of, of cerebral hemorrhage. And the, the key is to try and recognize the, these in life because this may have important implications for understanding their causes, their prevention, and ultimately disease modification in the case of, of amyloid. So we thought about what, what are the imaging markers that we know about so far and perhaps the most widely used one is cerebral microbleeds. So the distribution of these little tiny leaks from the, the vessels has been shown to have diagnostic value. So there's some validation studies that show strictly low bar microbleeds are a marker of amyloid angiopathy. But we'd also noticed in some of our hemorrhage patients that they had a high burden of these perivascular spaces on MRI. And the perivascular spaces um, are part of brain imaging that's received very little attention uh, for, for many years now. So they're usually dismissed as being incidental or uninteresting or just a feature of aging. But in fact, we notice they're very common in our patients with, with both ischemic and, and hemorrhagic manifestations of small vessel disease. There's a pathophysiological um, logic in expecting perivascular spaces to be altered in, in amyloid angiopathy. The perivascular spaces, these, these are where the small vessels perforate into the brain, taking a, a sleeve of meninges with, with them. Essentially, they are the drainage pathway for toxic solutes and fluid to leave the brain, so interstitial fluid. This, this is how it drains from the brain. And the deep white matter perivascular spaces drain uh, towards the surface of the brain, towards the cortex. They are um, susceptible to blockage by amyloid in, in the perivascular spaces. So we hypothesized that in amyloid angiopathy, the deposition of beta amyloid in the cortical and leptomeningeal vessels would impair drainage from the underlying deep white matter and dilate these perivascular spaces. So that was our main hypothesis. So how did you go about addressing that? We undertook a multi-center retrospective cohort study. And this is a, a cohort that um, is a collaboration between us in the UK with uh, London and Cambridge and also several centres in, in Belgium. And all these centres, the reason we chose these centres is that they routinely do MRI for the investigation of cerebral haemorrhage. And all cases of suspected amyloid angiopathy get an MRI. So we're, we're lucky to have a fairly unbiased cohort in that regard. So what we did with our collaborators was gather these scans together from people with amyloid angiopathy, presumed related haemorrhage, based on existing diagnostic criteria and also brain hemorrhage that uh, didn't fulfill those criteria. And essentially we, we counted the perivascular space burden in different areas of the brain. And we broadly divided the brain into two areas, uh, which is the deep regions of the basal ganglia, and then the white matter, which is sometimes termed the centrum semiovale, the, the, the white matter in the hemispheres. So what we did is we measured the burden of perivascular spaces in both of these regions in people with who fulfilled the criteria for amyloid angiopathy based on existing diagnostic criteria. And we hypothesized that the ones with amyloid-related intracerebral hemorrhage would have a higher burden of severe perivascular spaces in the deep white matter, but not in the basal ganglia.
And what did you find? What we found was that um, the patients with amyloid angiopathy had a higher prevalence of severe perivascular dilated spaces in the centrum semiovale, uh, the, the, the deep white matter of the cerebral hemispheres. So about uh, 36% of those patients had severe burden of disease, whereas those with um, non-amyloid related intracerebral hemorrhage had a much lower prevalence, it was about uh, 17%. But also what we wanted to do was look at the risk factors for these um, different distributions of perivascular spaces. And interestingly, we found different associations for those in the deep parts of the brain and those in the, uh, the white matter. So in the deep areas, we found an association with the severity of white matter hyperintensity and with age and with lacunes, which, which are small deep infarcts in the brain. Whereas in the centre of semivale, the white matter, we only found an association with age, but none of the classical risk factors. So what this suggests is that there's a different process leading to these perivascular spaces in the deep parts of the brain compared to, to the perivascular spaces in the white matter. And of course, the only risk factor that we know of for amyloid angiopathy is age, really. It doesn't seem to, in previous studies, to be related to classical risk factors. So your hypothesis was supported which is always good. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> the field is clearly moving away from the idea that all stroke is the same, that all stroke is caused by the same risk factors, and in fact the idea that large vessel disease and small vessel disease are maybe very different entities, or are clearly very different entities, and in fact with, even within small vessel disease there are clearly very different, different uh, pathological entities. I think that's absolutely right, and it may be that some of these uh, small vessel processes are not um, as closely related to classical risk factors as, as we think. And amyloid angiopathy would be one, one example of that. But even the deep form of small vessel disease, which um, has been much more studied in terms of its ischemic manifestations, it may not be simply related to hypertension, diabetes and classical risk factors. So there's a lot of work going on, Joanna Wardlaw's group in Edinburgh and so on, many, many other groups, looking at whether there might be a primary failure of the blood-brain barrier, some sort of inflammatory process underlying this disease. Yeah. So you talked a little bit earlier about advances in treatment. So where does this move us in terms of thinking about how to prevent, I guess we're talking about uh, prevention of progression of disease in these cases? Well, the, the key, of course, to cerebral hemorrhage, as, as you rightly say, is prevention is, is better than uh, cure because it's such a devastating illness. Once, once you get the hemorrhage, it's very difficult to, to treat that acutely. So I think the future success of the field will lie in, in successful preventive strategies or disease-modifying strategies. And what would be very exciting it would be if um, perivascular spaces turned out to be an early marker of disease, for example. And there's some evidence from ischemic small vessel disease that perivascular spaces predate some of the other findings like white matter changes. And we just simply don't know whether perivascular spaces in, in the context of a risk of hemorrhage are an early marker of disease or not at this point. So we really need large population-based studies to, to address that question. Data that we have so far is certainly consistent with the idea that these might be a very early marker because virtually all of the patients in our cohort had severe perivascular spaces or mod moderate to severe perivascular spaces. And that suggests that um, it might be an early phenomenon in the, in the disease. So I think we really need longitudinal studies to answer that question. 
We were talking earlier about the, the situation which won't be uncommon in clinical neurology of um, ordering an MRI scan on a patient for a, um, some other reason than the report historically used to come back with saying enlarged perivascular spaces but this was a normal finding or in fact in many cases it probably wasn't even reported but if the report comes back now in your patient who you've scanned for a headache for example what do we do with that information now well that's a different population so that's different from our population of people who've already had a brain hemorrhage and we know that amyloid angiopathy is actually very common in the population at large so over the age of 60 it's got a pretty high prevalence you know maybe 20 30 percent so if we find these on an incident on a on a on a scan i think at this point we don't know those people who are going to be at substantial risk of progressive small vessel disease and those those that aren't so i don't think it should be in isolation cause for alarm however in the right clinical context for example say you had perivascular spaces lots of microbleeds maybe some transient neurologic symptoms or maybe some cognitive impairment that would push me towards investigating for a diagnosis of um, either amyloid angiopathy or hypertensive arteriopathy depending on the distribution. Mm. Okay thank you David for coming to talk to us about uh, that paper I think that was uh, that was extremely interesting and it was good to hear about updates on how things are moving in intracerebral hemorrhage. Thanks Nick yep certainly an exciting field thanks for asking me along. And David Waring's paper is available in full and for free on jnmp.bmj.com. That's everything for this edition. Now don't forget those two special education podcasts on peripheral nerve disease and MS, also now up on the site. Thanks for joining us. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.